We are continuing the Summer Psalter series today. Um, We are going to be in Psalm 51. So if you have your Bible or your electronic device, you could get it to there. Um, But we're also going to be taking a look at 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. So if you want to flip back and forth to there as well. So uh, Psalm 51, let's get right in. Uh, This is a remarkable psalm. And there is no way that I can do it justice in 30 to 35 minutes. Um, I have prayed this psalm more times than I can possibly count. Um, But anyways, Pastor John last week had spoken from Psalm 34 in book one. And now we're in book two, and the choice was Psalm 51. So I think most of us would be able to agree that we would like to see our world change. That we would uh, like to be world changers, maybe even as individuals, for the kingdom. You hear people call it Jesus revolution, you hear people call it revival, all different types of words, but I think most of us can agree that we need change. Well, I believe that this psalm can show us one of the ways to get that. We're going to examine this progression of repentance and revival in David's life. So let's look at it, but before we get even into verse 1, we need to figure out what's going on. So before verse 1, you'll read this in your Bibles, in some version. Uh, This is in the New King James version, Version. To the chief musician, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. So we need to explore this portion before we understand what David is saying to get the context which the psalm comes from. And you can do that by looking at 2 Samuel's chapter 11 and 12. But since we don't have time to read the whole thing, I am going to give it to you in a nutshell. Okay? Quick overview. So it's the springtime when all the kings are out to make war with one another and David is relaxing in his palace. He decides not to go to war. And one day he sees a woman bathing on her rooftop. He asks his servant who she is, and they say, David, she's another man's wife. She is Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. He said, okay, go get her for me. So they go and get Bathsheba, and David and Bathsheba sleep together. They commit adultery. And who knows, maybe they think, like many of us, that they're never gonna have to worry about that again. But they are wrong. She finds out that she is pregnant, and so she sends a note back to David, tells him she's pregnant, her husband is at war, he's at battle, so it can't possibly be his child. And so what in the world is King David going to do? He decides, like many of us with our sin, to try and cover it up. So first he decides to bring her husband Uriah back to him, And then when he's here, you know, he can come back, report about battle, come back home, and oh, by the way, now that you're conveniently here, why don't you go home and spend the night with your wife? And David's thinking this is going to cover it up because then they will sleep together, and eight to nine months later, a baby will be born, and no one will know any different that it's not Uriah's. But Uriah is this righteous guy who says, no, I can't do that. He ends up sleeping on the porch of the palace, and he doesn't even go home. 
And David sees him in the morning and says, like, what's going on? Shouldn't you be at home with your wife? And he says, I can't do that when my brothers are fighting and dying for our nation. I just can't be merry and be home with my wife. So I'm out here. Well, now David can't just cover up this sin now, can he? Right? What is he going to do now? So he tells Uriah, how about you just hang out here in Jerusalem just a little bit longer, and David writes a letter. It's crazy, actually. I mean, it all is crazy. But he writes it to the general, the commanding chief, Joab, and he tells Uriah to take it to him. And he doesn't realize that he is carrying his own death sentence in his hand. But he takes it, he hands it to Joab like he was instructed to do, and the letter says to put Uriah on the front lines of the next craziest battle. And right when you guys are getting attacked, I want all the troops except for Uriah to draw back. So what happens? Uriah dies. So then David allows Bathsheba to mourn for her husband for a season, and then he marries her, and the baby is born, and it's a boy. So they're married, living in this palace. He's committed multiple sins and multiple crimes, things he, know, he would have been known since a child not to do, adultery and murder being at the top of this list. But he must be thinking, whew, that was close. He's got it all covered now. But see, here's the thing that you might not love, but I actually really love. God cares too much about David to let him stay in his sin. And you know what? God cares too much about you for you to stay in your sin. The Bible tells us in Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sin will find you out. And when you first read that verse, it feels a little scary, a little uncomfortable. It's not really a good thing. But did you know that God allowing you to be caught in your sin is actually one of the most gracious and loving things that he can do for you? It's like he's casting out a line to you and saying you don't have to be there anymore. In this thing, whatever this thing is that's tormenting your soul, you don't need to be there. That thing that's causing you pain and grief, because I've got freedom and forgiveness for you. I think it's, this is a hard one to sell, but it's something that we need to realize. I know it may not feel like a blessing when you get caught, or you get called out, or you get busted, but the next time this happens to you, I want you to remember, I want you to realize that it is the grace of God drawing you back to what is actually best for you. So how does David get called out? Because he's about to get called out. Well, God sends a prophet named Nathan, and Nathan goes to David. He's talking to David, and he says, I've got a story for you. I've got this situation I'm facing, and I'm not sure exactly what I should do. So he makes up a story. There are these two guys, and both of them have lambs. One is poor and only has one lamb, and he loves this lamb. Right? He treats it, the Bible says, like a daughter. He spends time with it. He cuddles it. It eats from its plate, drinks from his cup, like many of our pets. I mean, that's what that sounds like. He loved this lamb. 
Then there's this rich guy who has a whole flock of lambs. He has friends come to town, and he wants to prepare them food. Well, he doesn't want to use any of his lambs from his flock. So what does the man do? Kills the poor man's one lamb. He slaughters it, he kills it, and he eats, they eat it. Nathan really knows how to talk to David here, because David was a shepherd, right? Now David is livid, like he is mad, he is angry, he says it's the most evil possible thing that you could do. How in the world could this guy be so insensitive and take something that wasn't his? This guy needs to pay four times what the law would usually require. Like he's mad, right? He's just laying down and leveling out all these charges. And then Nathan says, you are the man. The man is you, David. Because you are the one who took something that wasn't yours. And I want to make just a little side note here. Often our sin looks worse on other people. We're often more willing to put up with the things that we're doing wrong, but when somebody else does something wrong, we're much quicker to judge, even though we're equally as wrong. So Nathan is saying, you are the man. You are the one that has done this great evil against God. And the longer that I personally walk with God, and live on this planet, I find that can often be said about me. Right? You're the man. You're the woman. You're the one in sin. You're judging all those people. Maybe you need to look at yourself. See, I mess up all the time. Sometimes I lose my temper. I say things I don't mean. I get jealous. I'm selfish. I have to ask God to change the channel in my mind repeatedly throughout the day. So maybe you're like me and David, the one who sinned, has done something wrong against the Lord. Maybe you're living a life that's dominated by sin, or maybe not dominated by sin, but something like pride, or hatred, or unforgiveness. Maybe you've cheated, or killed, or stolen. Maybe something else. Maybe you don't love people, and we're called to love God and love people. Sometimes we can even sin and fall short when we're trying to do the right thing but for the wrong purposes. Our, motiva- our motives can be sinful. And this is a message I think we all know. If you've been in church more than one or two times, if you've read the Bible for even two hours of your entire life, you will know that the major theme of the Bible is sin. Because it's one of our biggest issues, if not the biggest issue, of our existence. And no one, no one is without sin. Not only does the Bible tell us that, but I'm guessing your close friends and families could tell you that about you as well. So now, let's actually begin in verse 1 of Psalm 51, now that we know where David's heart is, what has happened, and now this is David's response to sin. And the goal is not for you to leave here today, especially if you're new, I'm sorry, uh, feeling depressed that we are sinners, okay? That's not the goal here. The goal is that I want you to leave here today with the hope of a savior. That's what I want. So with that in mind, let's read. 
Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother's conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Then jump down to verse 9, and it says, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. We will get to all the verses, but... This part kind of goes together for me right now. So what I want us to see is the progression of repentance through this passage. But I first want to explain a few different aspects of what David called out about sin. He uses three different words here. He says sin, he says transgressions, and he says iniquities. What is he referring to? What's the difference between those? So just really, really short. There's lots you could say. But sin is referring to the standard of God, the laws of God. He has sinned or gone against God's standards, right? Transgressions, David here is speaking of understanding God's standard and doing it anyways. He knows God's rule, and yet he just looks him in the face and does it anyways. For example... There's a boy in my kitchen, let's call him George, and he has grabbed a cookie, and he's about to bite into it, and I say to George, don't eat that cookie, and he stares at me right in the face and chomps that cookie. This is what I'm trying to show you as an example. He knew that he wasn't supposed to do it, but yet David did it anyways, right? Then iniquities, this is a tough one. This speaks of the ability to twist things in such a way that allows you to do it. Allows you to feel good about what you're doing, right? And I think we've all done this one at times. And all of these things you need to be praying and thinking through daily. But I just wanted to make a comment on those three words. So back on track, we want to see the progression of repentance through this passage. So we see first and foremost that David's grievance of sin against Uriah and Bathsheba, but more importantly, against God. David is repentant, and that's my first point, is repentance. He cries out to God, have mercy on me, O God. Mercy is not getting what you deserve, okay? To understand mercy, you kind of have to understand justice, right? If you commit a crime, there's a punishment or a penalty that is to be paid, right? But mercy is saying that, yes, justice needs to be met. You should have a punishment, but instead of that punishment, you aren't going to get one. That's mercy. Not getting the justice that you do deserve. And David committed two major crimes here, murder and adultery, In Leviticus 20, and David would have known this, 10, it says, the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress, shall surely be put to death. 
And Numbers 35, 31, Moreover, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. See, David's sin left him in a really desperate situation. That meant he had to pay for those sins. And the penalty under the Jewish law was death. In this case, two death sentences. But it's really, really worth noting, because he's asking for mercy, he's asking for mercy based on the knowledge of God's character, which I think is super important for us to see in this. According to your loving kindness, according to your multitude of your tender mercies, so we can come boldly to God when we know the God that we're coming to. And David knew that God was gracious. He knew he was merciful. He knew he was loving and kind and that he was generous. So knowing his character gave him greater confidence to call out for God to act on that character. Which is why it is so crucial that you and I know the God that we say we serve and love. Why it's crucial that you're in the word studying the Bible to understand the God that we serve. And so crucial to be spending time with him in prayer as well. So another major thing that is a part of this repentance portion that we see in this passage is in verse 3. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. This is an example of confession. He's confessing. David is owning it. He's not blaming anyone. He's not blaming his wife or his church or his pastor or his family or his struggles or whatever it is that he's going through. David says, I'm going to say the same thing about my thoughts that God says about my thoughts. I'm going to say the same thing about my evil deeds that God would say about my evil deeds. That they are sin. David calls it out. He calls it what it is. Sin is sin. And we can't shy away from it even though I know we hate hearing that word. I know it. We just can't. We've got to call sin, sin. Sure, in others, but more importantly, what I'm talking about is in us, in ourselves. Because it's easy, it's so easy to point fingers and point out sins in others. But we need to be careful in shrugging off our own sin by comparing ourselves to others. Or just dismissing it as a misstep or a mistake or an accident. But we, like David, need to get to the point where we're acknowledging the things that we're doing and we're calling them what they are. There is no greater danger than to shrug off the sins that Jesus Christ died for. If they were serious enough for the Son of God to leave heaven and be nailed to a cross because of those sins, I think we ought to take them seriously. So confession. You call it. You call yourself out. You call it what it is. You recognize the consequences and that, you, uh, that sets you in a really great pra- place for, to ask for forgiveness. But David's not just asking for forgiveness here. He wants to be restored and renewed, right? So starting at verse 7, 
Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. I think I've said that about a million times in my life. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. So that first weird word, hyssop there, uh, it's, it's a plant. It's a plant that grew in the Middle East. Oftentimes it would just grow out of walls. It was used in a lot of ceremonial cleanses to the Jewish people. But most notably that I wanna point out is it was used in Passover. When the children of Israel were in Egypt, it's the last plague. God is going to send the angel of death, and the firstborn of every household is going to die, except for those who have blood on their doorposts. So this plant, hyssop, it was like a nature-made paintbrush. They would put blood from a lamb in a bowl. They would dip this hyssop plant in the blood, and then they would paint their doorposts. So most likely... David had Passover, the death of a lamb in mind, when he says, wash me whiter than snow, because Jesus isn't on the scene yet. He hasn't died for our sins. Usually there's a sacrifice involved. So purge me with hyssop, watch me, and I will be whiter than snow. You see, it takes blood to make us clean. But what we know that David didn't know, and the book of Hebrews tells us, is that the blood of goats and bulls is an impossible way to take away sin. But John the Baptist tells us that Jesus is the Lamb of God, which we sang tonight, who takes away the sins of the world. So it's pretty critical what we're hearing about David. He isn't just asking for God to pity him, to turn his face, to shrug his shoulders and say, okay, no worries, we'll forget about that sin. He isn't asking God for pity, but for a pardon, a substitution, a lamb's blood for mine. And Jesus' death on the cross, which we f- we're in the future, so was infinitely more effective than thousands and thousands and thousands of lambs that were being sacrificed year after year in the tabernacle and eventually in the temple. Jesus' blood for ours is infinitely more effective for the nation of Israel and for you and me. So David needs a pardon, not just pity. So then this is when he transitions from asking for mercy for asking for grace. So like I said before, mercy is not getting what you deserve, and grace is getting what you don't deserve. So just a silly example, okay? Your kids, depending on the age, maybe your justice is grounding, spanking, timeout, taking away electronics, that's a good one in my house. Mercy is them doing something wrong, and you don't ground them, you don't take away their electronics. Grace is them being taken out and buying them toys or buying them whatever it is that they want, something they didn't earn and didn't deserve. And that's grace. A really silly, bad example of grace, but mercy and grace. And David says, create in me a pure heart, O God. He isn't just asking to be forgiven or pardoned. He wants to be right before God again. I want to be created completely new again. And I really love this word create, and I wish I would have had a lot more time 
to study it because in Hebrew it's Barah. I, I may or may not be saying that right. In the exact, and the same exact word, Barah, is found in the first five words of the Bible, right? In the beginning, God created Barah. When God is creating out of nothing, see, he created the universe out of nothing. He didn't take a few particles from over here and a little bit of sand from over here and take a little bit of Mars. None of that existed. In the beginning, God created out of nothing. And David uses the same word here when he says to God to create in him a new heart. And it's just so interesting to me. We like to say that God is in the business of restoration, which he is, Okay, I get that, but he's also in the business of recreation, reanimation. That is exactly what you're celebrating when you get baptized, that our old person has died, and behold, he makes all things new. New creation in him. It's like when you take your phone in and it's been cracked, okay? I'm sure everyone here has cracked their phone. Years ago, when you take it into Apple, you had Apple Care, like me, if the glass was broken on the, on the back of it, they wouldn't fix it. They would just give you a brand new phone. And this is just a ridiculous illustration to say that God doesn't just fix your phone, doesn't just restore us, doesn't just give us new glass, he doesn't just paint you and make us look pretty, he makes us new with all new components, new in him. And this is exactly what David is asking for, right? And then, he create, and then he continues, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. What David is realizing here is what's going to sustain him is the presence of God. What is going to give him a steadfast spirit is being with the Holy Spirit spirit. And this may have scared David a little bit at this time, and I'll kind of explain that. There's three Greek prepositions when it comes to the Holy Spirit, okay, in relationship with humans. So with, the Holy Spirit is with you, Holy Spirit is upon you, or the Holy Spirit is in you. Well, in the Old Testament, you'll just find with and on, it usually went with some sort of manifestation of some sort of gift, maybe leadership, some sort of miraculous work when the Holy Spirit became upon somebody. He had the power to do the work of the Lord, or rather the work of the Lord would happen through him. Since God was with him through the Holy Spirit. It's only in the New Testament that we come across the third one, which is in, when we see the Holy Spirit lives in us. So before King David was King Saul, I was hoping somebody knew, and, we told, and we're told in 1 Samuel chapter 16 that the Holy Spirit left Saul. So David would know this. David is thinking this. And when the Holy Spirit left Saul, he gets crazy and depressed and makes crazy decisions and crazy mistakes. So you might imagine that David, knowing that, is thinking, oh, no, God, don't take your Holy Spirit from me, right? And not just because I don't want to be alone, but because I know that any sustained relationship, any sustained forgiveness and rightness with you means being in your presence with you. 
not just forgiveness, not just survival, not just getting by, but to thrive in his relationship with God. And I think some of us buy into this cheaper version of Christianity. It's like I said the prayer, I read the Bible, I pray, I serve. I really don't need to do that anymore. Well, you may not need to do it to be saved again, but are you living the full potential life that God has for you? And David says, I want you to create a brand new heart in me. I want to be right relationship with you. I don't want to lose your calling that you've placed on my life. I don't want you to take your power from me. I want to be about your business so that I can thrive in my relationship with you, God. And then verse 12, it says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. The joy, joy is also mentioned in verse 8 when it says, make me hear joy and gladness again. So the part of the story I didn't tell you when I gave you the little short part is that David loses a child. So when he's saying this, you can imagine as a parent who lost a child, because it is what happens. Nathan said, okay, God's going to forgive you, but you will lose that child. And David fasts for days, and the child ends up dying. And then he begins eating, and he gets his strength back. He's coming back around. But you can imagine that that stays with him. Losing a child and the pain that comes from that changes you. And he says, I want you to restore the joy of knowing you. Restore in me the joy of your salvation. Let me hear gladness and joy again. Can you remember the very first time you tasted grace? Can you remember the first moment when you realized that none of your sin and none of your shame was on you anymore? Because Jesus took it on himself? Do you remember that moment, that freedom? There are these videos that go around all the time, I'm sure you've seen them, and they're videos of people who have been deaf their entire life. And now they've got these implants to help them hear. And I don't know all the science behind it, but they implant a device inside your head and one on the outside. And these videos are recording that very moment that they first hear for the first time. And the one that I watched, that like I'm a sucker for these things, like I'm just bawling at the computer when I watch them, but her name is Sarah Sherman, and you should look it up because the moment is actually quite incredible. But playing YouTube videos on here doesn't always go well. So uh, she's a 29-year-old woman. She's never heard a single sound. She's a mother. She's a wife. And she's just grown used to never hearing of anything. She gets this procedure done, and her husband's recording the very moment she hears her voice and her husband's voice for the first time. She's weeping, like weeping tears of joy. It, it's the, the most beautiful moment and absolutely incredible and gets me crying most times that I watch them because that's what it felt like for me when I tasted grace. Like I'd never heard or never saw before and then all of a sudden, it just all made sense. Do you remember the first time you tasted it? The first time you were forgiven and you realized the gravity of that? 
We need to get into the habit, I know this isn't the habit series, but the habit of remembering. The joy of our salvation that we've been given through Jesus. That this is an exciting joy that we can live through with whatever the circumstances are surrounding us. Jesus took your sin. He died your death and gave you life. We have never been good enough, but he paid with his blood anyways. You and I deserve death like David, but God has breathed life into us because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we need to remember that. And this is one of the reasons that we celebrate communion that we will be after this message, is to remember that sacrifice. The God that loves us so much paid it all on the cross. It's actually the reason we do everything. That's why we gather, that's why you're sitting here right now, that's why we worship, it's why we give, it's why we love, it's why we express joy. It's the joy of our salvation. So this psalm is a song, as we're gonna close it up here in the last verses. But what I've noticed is it's this rhythm of repentance and renewal. Repentance and renewal. And I just believe that there's a word there that as Christians we should be in that habit, in, in that, just repentance and renewal. Repentance and renewal. Not, I said the prayer, I came forward, the Lord's my savior, that's great. I don't need to repent for my sins ever again. No, you don't need to be saved again, but we need to be continually in this rhythm of recognizing our sin, repentance, and renewal. And I really believe that's what's going to lead to my third and final point, is revival. So let's read 13 to 19. Then I will teach transgressors my way, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasures to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. So that first, very first word, then. It's pretty important. Why is it important? Because then tells us when. Right? When is then. So then, after I repent of my sins, been forgiven for my sins, I've been created a new heart, and I have the Holy Spirit with me, then I'm going to start teaching transgressors my way, show sinners that you love them, that you're going to show them the gospel that saves them. Then. See, it took 13 verses of repentance to get to this point. And I think it's kind of important to note, and. And well, one conclusion I believe that we can draw from this is that personal renewal must precede public revival. What's really going to bring a Jesus revolution, a revival, a change, is when we get serious, not just about other people's sin, 
but when we get serious about our own sin. When we say, I'm not going to accept that in my life anymore. Jesus not only forgave me, but he freed me from that. So I don't have to walk in that anymore. We're going to choose holiness and choose to follow him and not ourselves. So there's something fun that I want to point out. Now, I do not have a special degree in English literature. I'm sure you figured that out. I barely passed my college English literature class. I barely speak English, to be quite honest. But I do have to know how to count verbs because my kids always have to count verbs with their homework, right? So Pastor John talks about, you know, finding things that repeat itself in scripture. I often look for verbs that tell me something about characters. So what I did with this chapter, because he kind of did that with the repeating last time, so we're just going to try something different, is I counted all the verbs in this psalm that are related to God. What God does in this chapter. So David cries out, and it says, so have mercy, wash me, cleanse me, You're going to judge. You can judge righteously. Teach, cleanse, wash. Let me hear. Hide your face. Blot out transgressions. Create, renew, restore. Grant me, save me, open my lips. Those are some hardcore verbs right there. Renew, create, wash, cleanse. 24 things that God brings into this psalm, but you want to know what David brings to this psalm? His sin. He brings his sin, his transgressions, his evil, his murder, his adultery. The only thing that you and I bring to salvation is the same thing, our sin. But you know what? Post-salvation, post-coming to Jesus, There are three things that stand out here. He says, then I will teach, I will sing, and I will declare. So that's our job. God takes care of the washing, the forgiving, the renewing, the judging, the creating. And in response to his greatness, and in response to his mercy and his grace, we're not going to let other people who don't know him not know him. We want to let them know that they can know him. And then we can teach, and we can sing, and we can declare together. I think people are ready for change. I believe that. I really believe that. The worship team can come up. That we're hungry. There's people out there just hungry for more. I truly believe that the ground is ripe in our city, in our country, in our communities for revival. I believe that the world is grasping at answers that we already have. Let me repeat that. The world is grasping at answers, for answers, that we already have. What a shame if we keep that to ourselves. What if we decided to make the center of everything we do about loving God, loving people, and preaching the gospel? What if we decided that our political opinion came second to Christianity? Hmm, really? You can do that? 
What would it be like if you were more disgusted by your own sin than all those around you? What if you asked forgiveness more than we ever pointed out other people's faults? What if your social media demonstrated the love of God instead of the wrath and judgment of man? I believe that's what's going to change things, folks. That's what's going to bring a revival. So we're going to go into a time of worship, but I do want to give you two takeaways really fast. And then we're going to have communion, and we're going to worship together and respond to this message, because maybe there's things that you have that you need to confess, that you need to work through. Maybe you just want to thank him for everything that he's done. But my first point is you need a Nathan. Not a Nathan Height, because he would be very busy, but everyone here needs a Nathan. Someone in your life that has permission to speak into your life, that can call you out, but then call you up. Nothing keeps you more from your calling than thinking you've got it all together. Because we don't. We need people that can speak truth into our lives. Someone who you can ask this question, which is the hardest question to listen to the answer. What does it look like to be on the other side of me? Ask your spouse that. Ask your friend that. What does it look like to be on the other side of Yasmin? the other side of Amanda or Dean? It's a scary question, but we need to be kept on track. And then our response is to walk humbly, humbly consider and pray about the things that they have shared with you. And the second is go all in. Repent often, recognize your sin, call it what it is, be forgiven. It's right there waiting for you. Let God create you a clean heart. Let the Holy Spirit lead the way and then invest in eternity by bringing people to Jesus. Amen.